one, uh, an additional meeting has been added for the History of Medical Missions course that's going to be offered with Dr. Bill McCoy this summer. You will be going to Africa for that class. And an additional meeting has been added this evening. Is that right, Dr. McCoy? 8.30 in the library. There you go. So I uh, don't want to miss that. Destination Unknown this Sunday. At the last Destination Unknown, we went to the Arab Evangelical Baptist Church. Uh, yes, some of, some, one person attends there, two people attend there. And uh, this Sunday, uh, the sign-up sheet's on the door of, of our office in Angel. Uh, there's still spots left for Destination Unknown. And then this week, we'll have revival services all week with uh, Reverend John Middendorf. And tonight, the Gospel Choir will be leading us in worship and song. So come to be a part of that. And I just want to introduce our speaker uh, now, and then uh, the chapel team will come back and lead us in song. But our chapel speaker for the day is uh, Pastor John Middendorf. Uh, Reverend Middendorf accepted the position of senior pastor at Oklahoma City First Church of the Nazarene in August 2007. So, he's from Oklahoma. Speak slowly. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm sorry, forgive me. Uh, I, he's a friend. Uh, plus, you've probably never been to Oklahoma. Anyway, uh, John has served OKC First in the past as youth pastor and more recently as senior associate and pastor of student ministries. He is now serving in his second decade at that church. John's best days, he says, are spent living life with his family he loves much, his wife Kelly and children Taylor and Drew. John enjoys opportunities to teach theology in the religion department at Southern Nazarene University. In addition, he's an accomplished and in-demand speaker and author, and most recently served the General Church of the Nazarene as the consultant and coordinator for Big Picture Youth Ministry Training. John has authored uh, five books. Uh, one of them is 101 Ways to Hang Out with a Teen. Uh, another one is Worship-Centered Youth Ministry and Living Justice, Revolutionary Compassion in a Broken World, and he co-authored that with Jamie Gates, from Point Loma Nazarene University and a graduate of the school. So uh, will you please welcome Reverend Middendorf uh, to our chapel this morning. Good to have you here this week. And let us stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are able to carry us through whatever difficulty we may be facing today. We thank you that you are able to give us the strength that is needed. We are thankful that you are able to heal the brokenness in our lives. We are thankful that you are able to let your healing waters flow through the dry and thirsty areas of our lives and of our homes and bring renewal and restoration. And, uh, we thank you that we serve a God who is able. So we glorify you now through song and through hearing your word, and we pray you be glorified. In Christ's name. Grace, my 
Your 
Jesus, I believe. Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I belong to you. You're the reason that I live, the reason that I sing with all I am. with you Conviction sing, Jesus, I believe. Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I belong to you. You're the reason that I live, the reason that I sing. Jesus, I believe. you. Yeah. 
has agreed to write him as a very scary, creepy sort of person. In fact, there are some who would say that the Joker is, though he is a two-dimensional character, you know what I mean by that? You see him on a flat page or on a flat screen or something like that. So though he is a two-dimensional character, the people who have undertaken to write the Joker throughout all these years have written him, and we think this is unique in comic book characters, they've written him with a sense of self-awareness such that he is aware that he is a two-dimensional character. And so sometimes, even in the cartoons and in the old, how many of you remember the old, old Batman show with Adam West? And that was glorious, wasn't it? We loved that. Yeah. You could tell that Batman had no superpowers whatsoever. He had a pot belly, but no superpowers. Even that Joker had a tendency to look at the screen and talk to you as if he was a real person. Even in the cartoons and even in the comic books, at times the Joker will just sort of look at you, the reader, or look at you, the viewer. And they do that on purpose because they are trying to write him to be that creepy. <laughs> that creepy, that sort, of, that sort of maniacal sort of weirdness such that you have a two-dimensional comic book character who is just so powerful, I guess, and so evil that he can actually overcome his two-dimensional nature to reach all the way to where you are. And they have agreed throughout the writing of this entire story that they would all write the Joker to be that guy and that creepy. And it still kind of happens. I don't know if you noticed this, but the Joker is, in fact, creepy. Right? Uh, but watch how he has changed. Now, this is <coughs> a picture of Cesar Romero. You remember this guy? Sort of a comic bookish sort of character, right? Did a lot of hooting and howling and, and didn't seem really all that dangerous, really, except that he did, even in that show. He would look at the camera every once in a while and act like he was talking to you. And, and then in 1989, I can't believe it's been that long ago, there was the movie Batman starring Michael Keaton. I still have trouble seeing Michael Keaton as Batman. I need him to be bigger and stronger and meaner. But Michael Keaton was Batman, and, and this was the Joker. Remember this guy? Oh. Jack made a very good Joker, didn't he? <coughs> now, he was creepy. He was all kinds of creepy, wasn't he? Now, here's the thing I want to tell you about Jack Nicholson and later about Heath Ledger. Y now, there are some of you in the room. I understand you have a play going on right now that's uh, incredible, and I'd like to see it. So some of you in the room will know this. Um, there are different ways of going about this whole acting thing. Uh, some people just sort of play their character. In other words, they pretend. But other actors are called method actors, and they try as best they can to become the character. Does that make sense? So Jack Nicholson, being a method actor, studied and studied and studied and studied the Joker so that by the time he hit the set, he wasn't Jack Nicholson pretending to be the Joker. Jack Nicholson actually was the Joker. Now, Jack Nicholson said this. He said, now... If you were to, I've read some interviews since, and you can find some of this stuff online if you go looking for it. Jack Nicholson will say that this was one of the more challenging and frightening characters he ever played because Jack is a method actor. What Jack Nicholson tries to do on a regular basis, whenever he's playing any character, he tries to blur the line between Jack Nicholson and said character. And some characters, when you do that, it, it, it can be a, a fun thing. But other times, in other characters that you play, it can actually be a dangerous thing. And Jack Nicholson said this about playing the Joker. He says, I think that the Joker actually, when I blurred the lines, the Joker scratched my soul. Isn't that interesting? So for all these weeks and weeks and weeks leading up to the filming, he studied the Joker. And he started the process of blurring the lines between himself 
Jack and the Joker. And notice that as he did, it started to really haunt him. Even during the hours that he wasn't uh, the Joker and that he was Jack Nicholson, he still found that the Joker part was still haunting him and bothering him, scratching his soul, even disturbing his sleep. Now, I think he made a fantastic Joker. I mean, I really do. I mean, I, as, a, as, a, as a consumer of this kind of entertainment, I thought it was great. I thought he was compelling. I thought he was convincing. He got wide recognition for how well he did playing the Joker, but he would tell you after the fact that it was a very difficult role for him to play because it was a very difficult role for him to finally leave. He found that this character, the Joker, did not willingly relinquish his life and allow him to go back to being Jack Nicholson. And so when he heard that Heath Ledger was going to play the Joker, rumor has it he called him not once but twice to warn him about it. You know why? Because like Jack Nicholson, Heath Ledger was a method actor. He actually became these different characters. Now, take a look at this. <laughs> that is ugly. <laughs> That's how we say it in Oklahoma. That, that, um, if Heath Ledger was a method actor and in so being a method actor found himself not just trying to but wanting to become the Joker and he was going to become this character, it had to do something to him. And so Jack Nicholson called him long before filming started and he said, I hear you're doing a big Batman film. It's going to be great. You're going to be great. You're perfect. You'll be great. You just need to know this, though. Because of the way that you and I go about this acting thing, when you become the Joker, you need to know this, it's going to be hard for you to leave that role unscathed. And Heath Ledger says, sounds great. <laughs> I mean, it's my kind of character. And then sure enough, he got into the character and studied the character, and he's tried very hard to blur the lines between himself, Heath Ledger, and the Joker. And sure enough, it, it happened. The lines started to be blurred. In fact, it started to be blurred so much so that it started to scratch Heath Ledger's soul. And he found himself um, trying but being unable to separate himself from that role during his off hours when he was away from the set, he found himself having a very difficult time separating his thoughts, his posture, his attitudes and opinions from those of the Joker. Matter of fact, he got to the point where he couldn't, remember, he couldn't speak. And when he did, he had nightmares. And so... As the story goes, Jack Nicholson called him again and asked him this question, is it worth it? I know you're not quite through, but is it worth it? Because you could bail. happens all the time. There are a lot of movies that are started that aren't finished. So you, you could bail because it's obvious to all of us around you. It's, all, it's obvious to all of us paying attention that this character is getting more and more and more and more of you. Well, you probably know how the story goes, but just in case you don't, let me tell you how it, how it ends up. Heath Ledger said, thanks, I'm going to go ahead and finish. They weren't that far from the end of, of filming anyway, so he continued to struggle with this whole problem. 
this problem being that the Joker had sort of infiltrated and taken so much of his life that he had trouble finally extricating himself from that situation. He decided to go ahead with it, <coughs> and though he had problems sleeping, he just kept going and kept going. He finally sought some medical help so that he could finally sleep at some point, and, and he got some sleeping pills, he got some sleeping medicine, but apparently one night he took too many, and he never woke up. After the fact, Jack Nicholson has been really pretty tight-lipped. But every once in a while he would say, it's a very difficult character. It's a very, very difficult character. Because it seems that, at least for these method actor types who are really good at it, and I would tell you that Jack Nicholson and Heath Ledger were very, very, very good at blurring the lines between themselves and this, this particular person they're trying to portray very difficult role because I if you aren't able finally to extricate yourself from that character, then that character will have its grip on you and you may never get out of that grip. Alright, so what does this have to do? <laughs> Can we get to the following Jesus part? Because I'm a little creeped out myself. Well, let's change movies, alright? Look at this next picture. Do you, rem do you recognize this person here? So I'm going to take that as a yes. Some of you recognize who this is. Who is this? What's his name? This is Inigo Montoya, whose famous line is? Okay. We are people of culture, right? Because this movie is also 20 years old. It's a 20-year-old movie. It just, oh, I love that. Okay. Inigo Montoya, Spaniard, Spaniard swordsman, who did say, you killed my father, prepare to die. He was looking for the six-fingered man, remember all of this. And he also said to Vicini, Vicini was a little, I guess, Italian man who kept using very big words, not necessarily understanding what they meant, right? And so at one point, he says to Vicini, Vicini, you keep using that word. Remember what he says next? I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> Here's what I've noticed. I've noticed that it is possible to grow up in church, any denomination, by the way. It's possible to grow up in church and even go to a Christian college and hear certain words and phrases your entire life. In fact, hear them so often such that they become familiar to you and you can understand not really what they mean, but you can understand that it's a good thing when they are used. But you can actually live your whole life. Remember, I, I, I teach theology at, theology at Southern Nazarene, and then I have a lot of these same people in my church at OKC First. And what I've noticed is, and I am not excluded from this, it has been that way for me too, we can get into this whole religious rhythm of using certain words and phrases, and we can use them for so long without knowing what they mean that at some point it doesn't matter that we don't know what they mean. We can just use them anyway. And I think there are some incredibly important words and phrases within our different church traditions that we have to recover. We have to go back to them. We have to ask questions of them. We have to figure out what they mean because they are so deep and rich and thorough. And here's a word I want us to recover. And here's this word right here. Sanctification. <laughs> By the way, that is not a uniquely Nazarene word. You name me a Christian faith tradition, and they all, at some point or another, use this term, sanctification. 
the thing is, though, you can find a bazillion different definitions for it, and I'm just going to sort of add to that. <laughs> but I think what I'm going to tell you today is in keeping with the best of our tradition as it has to do with this word, sanctification. Now, if you look it up online, it's going to say things like to be consecrated or set aside or set apart for a specific purpose, and I totally, wholeheartedly agree with that. It also says, it also, in our tradition, means this. It's the means whereby the image of God is restored or repaired. In other words, you being created in God's image does not just mean that God has a nose since you have a nose, right? It also means that there is something of God in you and on you that is somehow marred or covered up or confused by this sin word, which we will talk more about later on in the week, by this sin. And sanctification is the means whereby that image of God is repaired or restored. But I want to give you another definition today. Having heard all that we've just heard about method actors, about Jack Nicholson, about Heath Ledger, and about the Joker, I want to say this to you. How about this? Sanctification is also that means whereby the lines are blurred between you and Christ. You catching that? Now, sanctification, and there's another word that goes along with it, and it's holiness, and that's another word that I want us to recover and that we'll talk about later on in the week. I, I think there are a lot of people who, when they hear this term sanctification, and they, when they hear this term holiness, they almost have in mind this, this, this surgeon who, going into surgery, is just sort of scrubbed completely clean. It's a sinless purity. And, and there's an element of that that I'm okay with, except that I don't think that is a holistic, I don't think that's all of it. So some of you, I think, dismiss the whole terminology of sanctification and of holiness because you feel like it's a perfection. It's a, it's a level that you will never attain. And in fact, some of you in your cynicism, and that would include me, some of you in your cynicism say, not only can I attain it, but I don't think you can either. <laughs> but what if, rather than it being a destination, and I think it can be, what if we talk about today the journey part of it? It's the means whereby the lines are blurred between you and Christ. If there is sort of an overarching theme or title to what I want to talk to you about this week, it's this. What God wants. What God wants. Today, I want to say this. To all of you who believe that what God wants is your perfect behavior, what God wants is actually deeper. What God wants is, is actually better than that. What God wants is intimacy with you. What God wants is to be so thoroughly wrapped around you and you around Him that it starts to become difficult to determine where you stop and he begins or where he stops and you begin. The Apostle Paul, prior to being the Apostle Paul, was Saul. A, a guy who was um, pretty well trained and equipped and educated to hate Christians. And in fact, he saw it as his job and responsibility to go and persecute Christians and even contemplate and perhaps even oversee murder. All this while he was Saul. 
And then, as some of you know, and maybe others of you don't, there was this day that he was on the road to this Damascus place. And Jesus, so many years after he had been resurrected, sort of appears to him and appears to him in such a bright light and a loud sound that it actually knocks him off his animal into the ground. And out of this light, this voice says, Saul, why are you doing this? Why are you persecuting me? Saul's response in that moment is, who are you, Lord? Which is interesting. Who are you, Lord? Then the voice from the light said, I am Jesus. So right now, there's a pretty clear distinction, right, between Saul and Jesus. There's a pretty clear distinction between all that Saul's about and all that Jesus has been about. There's a pretty wide disparity between those two. But Christ comes to Saul so as to close the gap. Not only that, but Christ comes to Saul so as to achieve at some point the kind of intimacy that would allow Saul, who would become Paul, to understand himself to be dead and to attribute his life to Christ himself. So to pick up the story, Saul, blinded by this light, finally goes into town. A man by the name of Ananias comes and works with him and prays with him. Sure enough, Saul, over a period of time, is able to regain his sight. And his name is changed from Saul to Paul. Not unlike other times when God seems to have been keen to change someone else's name. It's a big deal to have your name changed. Way back when, your name meant something very specific, and so when God would just sort of reach in and change your name, it wasn't just that he changed your name, he changed your entire identity. <laughs> Jacob, heel grabber is what that name actually means, becomes Israel, the one who wrestles with God. Simon becomes Simon Peter. Saul becomes Paul. Here's what God wants. God wants so much of you that your very identity might be moved and maybe even your name to be changed. You see, it used to be that at a baptism sort of ceremony, it used to be that you would come out of the water with a new and Christian name. It used to be that you would have a name change during that ceremony of baptism, a Christian name. In fact, I was teaching this to some of our young people right before their baptism, and, and a young man raised his hand and said, well, can we choose our own Christian names? And I said, well, I'm not sure that how, it, how it works, but what r Christian name would you choose? He said, well, Darth Vader. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> Take a look at this passage of Scripture right here. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a guy who has moved far beyond pretending to be like Christ, and he's, qu he's quite the method actor now, isn't he? He has now intentionally blurred the line. Let me tell you something. I... If you are still wearing your What Would Jesus Do bracelet, God love you. I just don't like that. Because I think it asks a question that I'm not sure we're supposed to answer. How can I pretend to be like Jesus in this moment? 
I'm not interested in you learning how to look like Jesus. I'm interested in you blurring the line between you and Jesus. And there's a difference. The difference has to do with companionship, time spent together, breaking down walls, intimacy. I want you to blur the lines between you and Christ. More importantly, Christ wishes to blur the lines between you and him so that at some point it may be difficult for you to recognize where your posture and opinions and attitudes stop and his begins. Does that make sense? That's what I mean when I say sanctification. In Romans 12, he says it like this. I urge you, family, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. You know, once you climb up on the altar as a sacrifice, dead or living, that is quite the commitment, isn't it? When you climb up on that altar as a sacrifice, you relinquish your hold on your life. And here's the thing, God will take it and then do something with it. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, set aside, and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. In other words, and actually, Micah, I'd like to, for us to do that song again, that last song again. Can we do that? And that'll be how we'll dismiss. So band, you might get ready, get all limbered up, do some stretching, whatever. Go ahead, band, come on up. We use the term worship a lot in the church. Maybe it's another one of those Anigo Montoya words. And I think at times what we do is we reduce it to the singing part of church. Or we reduce it to what we do when we're in this room. Or maybe 20 minutes of what we do when we're in this room on Sunday mornings. Paul does not see it this way. When you're Saul, who has become Paul, because God has come rushing to you to not just change your trajectory, but to change everything about you and maybe even change your name, worship for Paul is Paul climbing up on the altar and giving all of himself to God such that God now has the absolute freedom to blur the lines and to do with me what he would. That is the worship that counts. Hey, I want you to know the words of the songs. And I want you to go to church on Sundays. <laughs> I really do. Especially if you live in Oklahoma City, I want you to come to my church. But if you're doing all of that and then pretending to be Christ, you've not yet reached that level of intimacy or companionship that Paul calls worship. You've not yet begun the process of blurring the lines whereby it's hard to know where you stop and he begins. Blurring those lines. Blurring those lines such that God has more and more and more access to all that you are and all that you think and all that you say and the way that you spend and the way that you talk. Blurring those lines so that God has more and more and more access to all that makes you you. That's sanctification. Would you bow your heads with me? And Father, truthfully,
There are people in the room who aren't yet ready for that. My prayer is first for those people. Will you romance them? Will you come rushing to them and motivate and encourage and push them to be people who will at some point, at some point, Lord, willingly jump up on that altar? My prayer also is for those people who are so ready, eager, anxious to blur those lines. Just, Lord, fan into flame that desire to be more and more and more like you. God, I pray for this campus, for the students, for the faculty, for the leadership, for everyone connected to this campus. May they all work together to be a body, to be the body of Christ. May this be an environment in which line blurring is encouraged. And may people who look in from the outside wonder themselves where we stopped and where you began. Name we pray. Amen. Stand. And let's sing. And when we're done with this song, Micah, you can dismiss us all, okay?
again just for for your word for your love for your mercy Lord God I just pray that as we all go on go throughout our day that we'll never forget the message that you've brought here and that just help us to blur the lines between us and you so that we can become one in your name amen you are dismissed